right now that you are watching. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, as we continue our study in the Pentecostal handbook, all right, we're going to pick up where we left off in the story. Last week, we saw that Paul was on trial before the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish ruling council. They had charged him with desecrating the temple. They had accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple when he had gone in there uh, to make his vows, which was a false accusation. But nevertheless, they hate him so much. They hate his message. They hate the fact that he is trying to reach out to the Gentile people in the name of the Messiah so much that not only are they putting him on trial on trumped up charges, but when they can't get those charges to stick, they plot to kill him. So he's brought before the Sanhedrin, There's a, he's, and, and they, they go on a riot. They're gnashing their teeth. It's, it's a scene very reminiscent. When you look at Acts 23, it's a scene very reminiscent of when Saul had laid his, had, had, uh, they laid, it says they laid their coats before Saul when they went to stone Stephen. You guys remember Acts 7? You remember one of the first deacons when he was stoned to death for preaching the truth, right? It's kind of like this, the, the script has been flipped on Paul now. Now he's not the one sitting there witnessing the martyrdom of a godly saint, but he is actually the one who is on trial, he's being opposed by the Jewish people, by his brethren, right? So now we're picking up in a place called Caesarea, where he was transferred under armed guard because of the plot to kill him. There were more than 40 men who had sworn not to eat eat before they killed Paul. Um, The commander, Lysias, got a hold of this news, and then he was, uh, in response to that, you know, putting... uh, Uh, armed forces around him. Uh, And so he was protected there, and now he's going to appear before the governor, Felix. So I'm going to read the chapter without comment, and then we'll get into some of the goodies, some of the points that um, uh, we can find in this chapter. Okay? Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms to this nation. Everywhere, in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude." But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you would be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him, and there is a verse that probably does not appear in your NIV. I think this is verse 7 here. I'm looking at my notes where it's not numbered here. Yeah, verse 7 is missing from the NIV because they see this as a variant um, that may or may not be original to the text. And Pastor Joe has talked to you all a little bit about textual criticism. Um, And when you see variants like this, that's usually the reason. So let's say you have, uh, if you're a a textual critic of the New Testament, and you have, let's say, a thousand ancient manuscripts of Acts 24, right? Same chapter, and those thousand manuscripts produce slightly different readings in terms of the wording, um, the word order, and so on. Sometimes there's scribal errors and things like that. And so you're, you're comparing a thousand different readings there, and you're trying to determine from the thousand readings, trying to synthesize them and determine what is the best and most accurate, what is the truest to what Luke wrote in the original uh, book of Acts. So that's kind of what textual criticism tries to do in a nutshell. And the editors of the NIV saw it um, necessary. They did not think that verse 7 was original. They found it in some manuscripts. They did not find it in other manuscripts. And they said, well, this manuscripts we find it in that we do not find it in, we trust those more. And the manuscripts that that it's included, verse 7, 
we, we have reason not to think that. Now, whether they're right or wrong is beside the point. Pastor Joe's talked about different approaches. There is a more modern approach, uh, uh, an eclectic approach that's really taking all of these manuscripts into account. There's another approach um, where, it's, where they call it TR for short. It's for Textus Receptus. And this was the, uh, a more limited set of manuscripts on which the King James Bible uh, came to be based on. And there's folks on both sides of that. But just want to make a note of that. And this is what verse 7 says. So we seized him and we would have judged him in accordance with our law. But the commander Lysias came and took him from us with much violence, according to ordering his accusers to come before you. Now picking up in verse 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation that these things were true. Now, I, I want to stop here because I see this as kind of the, the introduction to what's about to take place. Paul is about to present his testimony before Felix, and that's where we want to spend most of our time today looking at how, uh, how Paul shares his testimony, how he responds to the charges laid against him, and then the interaction between him and Felix. So I, I've already kind of set up the scene here that the Jews have put him on trial on trumped-up um, charges of desecrating the temple, right? And now these charges are being reiterated before Felix, and it doesn't come without a little bit of what we... Uh, pardon my French, a little brown nosing from Turtleus. They hired a lawyer named Turtleus to, to kiss up to Felix and say, what an awesome governor he's been. And in fact, he was not an awesome governor. Felix talks about there being great peace uh, under his rule, and that was not the case. More on that in a few minutes. So Felix was not a good guy, um, not as good as Turtleus was making him out to be, but he's trying to butter him up, right? And then he is reiterating the charges there that he is desecrating the temple, that he's a blasphemer, that he is upsetting the Jewish religion. Now as we get to verses 10 through 21, here is Paul's answer to these charges. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the wicked and of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are, or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. What I want you to see as a major theme here is Paul's belief in the resurrection. You recall a little bit ago that Paul actually brought up the resurrection to cause a stir between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There were two sides of the coin of mainstream Judaism in that day. You had Pharisees who believed in the resurrection, and there were Sadducees who disbelieved the resurrection. And not only did they disbelieve the resurrection, they disbelieved angels and demons and really any concept of, of a supernatural world. They were very much naturalists, though they had some belief in the Jewish God. Another difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was that the Pharisees believed in the entire Old Testament 
And the Sadducees only believed in the Torah, which was the which Torah means what? Anybody know? It means the law. It's the law of Moses. It's the first five books of the Bible. And for them, they, they had a more limited canon there, and so they limited to that books. They disbelieved the prophetic books that came later. Anything that came after Deuteronomy was something they just did not take into consideration. But Paul, was he a former Pharisee or a Sadducee? He, he was a Pharisee. And so he says, he says in his uh, testimony that he says, I believe everything that is written in accordance with the law... So there's the Torah, there's the one section, and that is written in the prophets. Oftentimes when you see the New Testament referencing the Old Testament, they don't call it the Old Testament for one. They don't call it that. In fact, if you were to bring it up to a Jew today, they'd be a little offended because to them it's still their current uh, uh, testament. But it's referenced as the law and the prophets. Jesus in Luke 24 he talks about all that is written in the law, the prophets, and he includes the Psalms there as, as a division of the scriptures. I'm going to give you a little Hebrew lesson. What the Hebrews call the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrews call the Tanakh. Everyone say Tanakh. Okay. T is for Torah. Everyone say T, T. is for Torah. N is for Nebaim. Yeah. Right. And K is for Ketuvim. That's it. So, so you know, you, you insert the, the vowels there, the A's, you have Tanakh. T-N-K-T-A-N-A-K, right? That is the Tanakh, the Torah, which is the law, the Nebaim, which is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are the writings. So Jesus was Jewish, so when he referenced the, the, what we call the Old Testament, he called it the Law and the Prophets. Uh, Paul is very much the same way. Also, just wanting to stress once again, as a Pharisee, he believed all of it. Amen? And not just the Torah, but the Torah and the Prophets and everything else that we find in the first 39 books of the Bible. What I also want you to see here is that Paul had always believed and had hope in the resurrection. As a Jew, think about his B.C. days, man, right? As an ex-Pharisee, right? As a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. There were a lot of things that Paul was wrong about, amen? Uh, doctrinally, there were things that he misunderstood. There were things uh, that he did not get right. His, his heart was wrong in many ways as well as he was a violent persecutor of the church as he was is he himself said he was a blasphemer in his bc days he he urged people to blaspheme god because as he understands it in retrospect when i was telling people to deny jesus i was asking them to blaspheme and now he looks back and says man that's what i was doing but if you were to ask him in those days he would say i'm serving god to the best of my ability the best i know how Paul was wrong about a lot of things as a Pharisee, but he was right about a lot of things as well. One of the things he was right about was his hope in the resurrection. The only difference between the Pharisee, and I know there's no difference between Saul and Paul. We talked about that. Like the name change is not significant, right? It's just different language, different context, right? It's, it's no mystical thing there. Um, it's not like when Jacob becomes Israel or Abram becomes Abraham, Saul becomes Paul. That's, that's not the case, right? But let's just say you have Saul the Pharisee and Paul the Apostle, right? And one of the, and there's, there's, there's a sense of continuity. They're both incredibly driven, right? They're zealous, and, they're, and they have a great hope in the resurrection, and they're following God the best way they know how. But there's this Damascus Road experience that he had in chapter 9, which, we, which we've studied. And he had a realization that everything he'd really been hoping for this whole time was embodied and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, there is a great sense of continuity between the Old and the New Testament. Look at Luke 24, actually. Look at Luke 24, verse 44. I referenced this, this verse a moment ago, Luke 24, verse 44. It says, He said to them, 
This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. That's Tanakh, right? That's, that's Torah, rather, out of the Tanakh. The prophets, the Nebaim, right? And the Psalms, which can represent the Ketuvim, the writings, right? Everything that is written about Jesus in the Tanakh, our Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. One of the key differences between Saul the Pharisee and Paul the Apostle is that his mind was open to understand the scriptures. The same scriptures he'd studied his entire life suddenly made sense as they were being fleshed out in living color. That there was a man in his own day named Jesus, came out of nowhere, came out of Galilee, right? Uh, or Nazareth, rather. But he ministered in Galilee. They said, no prophet comes from, Gal uh, from Nazareth, and yet here he is coming out of Nazareth. There was a man of his own day who fulfilled all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And that was another thing he had right. He had a Jewish longing for the Messiah. In the first century, in that day, many Jews were hoping for two things, the Messiah and the resurrection. Jesus fulfilled both. And he suddenly understood it. So there's a great deal of continuity between the Old Testament or the Tanakh and then the New Testament. And Paul understood that. Now, take the Old Testament by itself, the first 39 books of the Bible, right? If you have the Old Testament without the New Testament, you have a very sad story. It ends in Malachi. It ends in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6 to be exact. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, it says, He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will strike the land with total destruction. Now that word total destruction can also be translated as curse. The last word of the Old Testament was a curse. That's where it leaves off. Now I don't, <laughs> I was going to go, I don't want to say too much about the Avengers, okay, like, but, but think about it like any good movie, right? Any good movie has beginning, the middle, and the end, right? And usually if you're just in the middle of it, you're at, you're at this part where everything is very uncertain. It looks like evil is winning the day, right? Um, and, and you're awaiting some kind of resolution. You don't know how it's going to come. You don't know who's going to save the day. You don't know how it's going to happen. But there's got to be somehow, some way that evil is conquered, right? That, that righteousness wins out, right? That the good guys, and just at the end, everyone has shawarma, right? If you've seen the first Avengers, right? We just wrap it up. We close up the wormhole. Everyone eats shawarma, right? Now imagine any good movie. You cut it off right in the middle, Right, So let's not take the new Avengers, let's take the first one. I assume we've all seen that. All right, so taking the middle, Loki has succeeded in opening up the wormhole. And now the Chitari are flying out and invading New York City. The end, to be continued in Avengers 2, right? Imagine it ends there. It's like, okay, they lost. Their goal was to, close, to prevent him opening the wormhole. He opened the wormhole, game over. That's it. That's kind of what the Old Testament's like. It leaves, the, it leaves the story in a bad place because sin and death is still reigning in the world. And with regard to Israel, the people of God, they're still not where they're supposed to be spiritually, politically, everything that God promised them. They are falling well below the promises that God had spoke to Abraham long ago. And so it's, it's kind of like taking a movie and then just cutting it off right in the middle. Right? The Old Testament without the New Testament is, is, is half a story. Right? You take Genesis through Revelation, you take all 66 books into account, and then you're going to see how the whole story plays out wonderfully. See, Paul understood that. And there were many things promised that had not been fulfilled yet. There, there were 
uh, many realities that were spoken of that seemed so far away. They seemed impossible, right? And now in Jesus, he sees, wow, this is happening, and this is how it's going to happen, and this makes perfect sense. Now, he talks about the resurrection. I want to hone in on that for a few moments, about the resurrection of the dead, because he states twice that this is what he was on trial for. He makes, he makes much of this point. He says, he says, for example, in verse 15, I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have, many Jews, many Pharisees, right? I have the same hope that these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And he goes on and says in verse 21, unless it was this one thing, I stood as I shouted in their presence, or I shouted as I stood in their presence, excuse me. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So Paul is proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, and he's saying that it began with Jesus, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of believe in something called progressive revelation, okay? And what I mean is that throughout the Bible's history, God was progressively revealing himself and revealing his ways more and more and more. Uh, so, for example, when God appeared to Abraham, did Abraham have the Ten Commandments? Did he have any concept of the priesthood, the tabernacle, all that stuff, right? Okay, so, so he didn't. He had what you might call a very primitive revelation of God, and, and he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, but it wasn't like the whole spiel. Then you get to Moses, and Moses did have all those things. He had the commandments. He had the, the tabernacle, the priesthood, all that stuff. They made a covenant at Mount Sinai. But did he have Billy Graham telling him, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? If you, if you were to tell Moses about Jesus Christ, he's like, oh, is that the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ? Who's that? Right? That wouldn't make any sense to him. Right? Now, you could also say that with that primitive revelation of God was a primitive belief in a Redeemer going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God speaks to Eve and he says, you know, your seed will crush the head of the serpent, he will strike his heel. And you could say there's a primitive hope in a Redeemer who will come and reverse the curse of sin in our world. But even that was being progressively revealed to the point where in Jesus' day it was more fleshed out. This Redeemer would be a son of David. This Redeemer would be a son of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, right? This Redeemer would, would come and reign and deliver Israel from her enemies. This Redeemer could be more specifically identified as the Messiah, as the anointed one, right? So the same goes with the afterlife. The Old Testament is actually somewhat vague on the afterlife. It speaks of this place called Sheol, Anybody familiar with that? You probably maybe learned about in some of your classes. Sheol, or translated to English, it is the grave. And you just picture like this murky, dark place. There seems to be consciousness there in the grave. There does. Um, but it, the, the weird thing is that both the righteous and the wicked, they both go down to the grave. That's one of the ironies about life that Ecclesiastes points out, that some of the psalmists point out. That even as a righteous man, hey, if I go to the grave, how can I praise you? As he said in one of the Psalms, how can I go, how can I praise you if I'm, um, if I'm in the realm of the dead? So they had a very murky picture of the afterlife, but there were a few glimmers of resurrection hope that came out in some of the Old Testament text. I'll give you a few of them. Look at Isaiah 25, 19. Isaiah 25, verse 19. Maybe that's 26. Make sure I have that right. Yes. Isaiah 26, 19. But your bodies will live, Lord. But your dead will live, Lord, I should say. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Now, this, again, is part of that progressive revelation because it's just this one verse. You can't get a, an exhaustive doctrine of the resurrection from this one verse, but you see the language. 
bodies, dead bodies that are coming out of the earth, being reinvigorated and brought to new life. Not like zombies. I don't, this, this is not, you know, some zombie apocalypse verse. This is like they are coming to life, refreshed, restored, renewed, right? And he's saying this is what the Lord's people, what's going to happen to the Lord's people. You have also Daniel 12, verses, verses 3 and 4. Or, or rather, verses 2 and 3. Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel came a couple of centuries later than Isaiah did, right? And he's getting a fuller picture that not only are these, these dead people rising, their bodies are coming up out of the earth and they're rising, but there's what we would call a dual resurrection. And this is what Paul exactly says. There's a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the wicked. And the Jews, they, they began to pick up on this, right? Because when you get to Jesus' day, you have the Pharisees who believe in the resurrection. And then you have the Sadducees who test Jesus with questions like, well, uh, say there's a woman who is married to twelve, uh, to, to, married to a man. She, he died, right? You guys know that 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 test, right? They're trying to puzzle Jesus. She, um, a woman marries a man. He dies. She marries his brother out of the out of the what's called the Leverite law, which is a custom where uh, a brother will marry his uh, a man will marry his brother's widow to keep his name going, so they can have children in his name. Okay, so let's say she ends up marrying seven brothers. Each of them dies in succession. Whose who's, uh, who's, uh, wife will she be in the resurrection? So they're trying to test her, but this presumes that there is a common belief had among the Jewish people in the resurrection, right? And then in, La- in, uh, in the case of Lazarus, look at John 11. Look at John 11. When Lazarus has died... Look at uh, 11.23. When Lazarus has died and Martha is speaking to Jesus about this, Jesus answered, said to her, your brother will rise again. That's verse 23. Verse 24, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Do you see what's implied there? She has a preconceived notion that there will be a resurrection of the dead at the last day. It's going to be a future resurrection. It's going to be a universal resurrection. In other words, everyone's going to rise at the same time. That's why it's waiting till the very end of history. Whenever God decides that the last day will be, he's going to come back and he's going to raise the dead, right? And so she understood this. This was a common belief in the days of the Jewish people. And now Paul is understanding this, right? His mind was open to the scriptures, He's understanding what Isaiah was talking about. He's understanding what Daniel was talking about. And he's taking this hope that he's always had, that he's always been taught, and it's not being refuted by Jesus coming. Jesus didn't come and say that's all wrong. He said, no, I've come to fulfill it, right? And he's come to fulfill the Jews' hope in the resurrection. That's why one of my favorite passages, 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, says this, and this is a key phrase here. In terms of progressive revelation, uh, especially with regard to the afterlife, it says, But now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Says it all, doesn't it? He, he puts the final word on it, he puts the exclamation point on all of those prophecies. Uh, of the past, on all of that revelation, there is that final word. And Jesus, with regard to uh, progressive revelation as a whole, he is the final word. Amen? Hebrews 1 says that in times past, in various ways, God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his being. So he brings the full revelation of God. He brings the full revelation of salvation. He brings the full revelation of what the afterlife is. 
And friends, let's take note of this. The resurrection is our hope. Our destiny is not to be disembodied spirits in heaven. Okay? Many people caricature heaven as a place where you sit on a cloud as a fat little baby plucking a harp. We need to get that idea out of our mind. Our destiny as believers is to live in resurrected, glorified bodies, to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus and to reign with Jesus, right? That is our hope. We're going to live in a real world. We're going to eat food. We're going to work. We're going to have jobs and we're going to live forever in, a gl in glorified bodies. We often miss this. When we all we do is say, hey, believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven after you die, right? We, we're not saying everything that needs to be said. When the New Testament, when they talk about the blessed hope, they're not just talking about going to heaven after you die. That's part of it. To be absent from our body now, our, our corrupt body, our sinful body, to be absent from this corrupt, sinful world as it is now is to depart and be with the Lord. Our spirits will be with God in heaven when we expire. But that is temporary. That is temporary. That's like God saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in this hotel suite while I get your mansion ready. You know what I'm saying? And our ultimate destination, our permanent destination is the new Jerusalem on the new earth with Jesus in new bodies. And that was Paul's great hope. Jesus has brought this uh, to light. And that's why he says in another passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23, let's look at that. This is the great chapter on the resurrection. This is probably the most in-depth discourse, not only on the resurrection of Jesus, but on our resurrection. Okay, I remember going to Wright College as a student. Today I'll be going there as a preacher. Um, but I went there as a student. I took philosophy of religion, and, and they gave me this book uh, as a textbook, and it had essays uh, that would represent the philosophies of various worldviews. Okay, And when it came to Christianity, I love this. I actually appreciate the book for this reason, is that when it came to Christianity... Instead of telling me what John MacArthur said or whatever, whoever said, or some, you know, even some great theologian of the past, it gave me Bible. It gave 1 Corinthians 15 in, in its entirety as a summary of the Christian philosophy. Come on. About Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. But, G, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I need to pause there because that's something that needs to be understood. That's something Paul began to understand, that the resurrection took, is taking place in essentially two phases. Jesus is the first fruits of that. Um, and he understood that. Now, there will be a future resurrection, right? But some people say, well, why haven't all the dead been raised yet? Well, he says, well, the, the main person to be raised was Jesus. He is the first fruits, right? So he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Okay? So he is the first fruit. And then when he returns, he's going to raise us up as well. I want to skip down to verse 29 here. And I want us to get a heart for the hope of the resurrection. This is how the resurrection motivated and drove Paul to do everything he did. He was a man on fire. We all know that. He was incredibly, incredibly fruitful and effective for the kingdom of God. And here is what drove him. Verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Little Lanyap here, Mormons baptize, get baptized for their dead relatives. They do this. They believe that you can posthumously be blessed into the Mormon faith if someone who comes after you, like a nephew or a grandchild, gets baptized in your name. And they use this as their proof text. Now, this is the only text in the entire Bible to mention baptism for the dead 
It's hardly enough to solidify this as a doctrine and a practice as the Mormons do. But I think Paul's pointing this out because it is, um, it is a practice that some people were doing at that time. And he's calling them out for it. He's saying, on one hand, you're saying there's no resurrection. But on the other hand, you're getting baptized for the dead. It's got to be one or the other. You know what I'm saying? So that's, that's kind of what he's going at there. But he doesn't really go further to, to affirm it or to say it's there, but it's something they're doing. And he's like, why are you doing that if you don't believe the resurrection? That's inconsistent. Verse 30, but this is it. And, for, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beast in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that is true. If Jesus is not raised and you will not be raised and all you have is your best life now, all you have is whatever success and happiness you can achieve for yourself in this life, why suffer? Why serve the Lord? Why go to Bible college? Why do any of this, right? Why? I, I found out that, that clerk, this is statistically true, that being a clergy is one of the least lucrative um, um, professions in America right now. Least lucrative. You're, you're spending good money on college, right? You're going to be paying student loans so that you could have one of the least lucrative professions in the country. What are you doing? Well, you believe in the resurrection, don't you? You believe that life is more than what we have here. The earth is, this earth is not our home as it is. This body is not our home as it is. And we are, we are doing what we can with, in our bodies now, on the earth now, so that when we have new bodies on the new earth, we'll be entrusted with much. Amen? So we have hopes that go far beyond what anything in this life can offer us. Any measure of worldly success in terms of family, in terms of career, in terms of finances, in terms of fame and popularity, anything that we could find fulfilling pales in comparison to what God offers in the hope of the resurrection. And so he faces death daily. He faces death daily for that reason. For him, it's, it's all gravy. I'll use up this body because Jesus is going to give it back to me. Right? Just like, you know, you might, use, you might use up some clothes playing football or something, get them muddy, get them sweaty, get them smelly, take it to the dry cleaner, get it back crispy, right? But, but this is even greater than that, right? It's like you take your busted old, you know, you take your busted old clothes and then you get back in an Armani suit. You know what I'm saying? He, it gets turned into that. You know what I'm saying? It's maybe a way to think about it. Because he talks about it like that. He talks about the perishable, the mortal, being swallowed up by what is immortal. The, the earthly, the base, being swallowed up by glory and life. Our resurrection bodies will be glorious and eternal. And beautiful. We'll all be beautiful. No one's going to be fat. No one's going to wear glasses. Okay. No one's going to get diabetes. Amen. No one's going to get Hodgkin's lymphoma. Nope. Nobody's going to have lupus. You get me? All of the, And the temptation of sin. That's another thing. Our bodies are bodies of death. Why do you face temptation? Why, are you, why do you sometimes, you don't need the devil to tempt you, you don't need the world to tempt you. It's not that there's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's your flesh. And your flesh will be redeemed from the curse of sin in every respect. That is our hope. All right? So that's what drove Paul. Amen? Let's get on to um, what he goes on to say in his discourse with, with Felix. Verses 22 to 27. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned his proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, 
So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant favor with the Jews, he left Paul in prison. All right, so let's, let's talk about this interaction, a little bit about Felix. This is from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Antonius Felix was born a slave and freed by Antonia, the mother of the Emperor Claudius. He was the brother of Pallas, who was also a freedman of Antonia, and became a good friend of the young prince Claudius in the imperial household. Through the influence of Pallas in AD 48, Felix was appointed to a subordinate government post in Samaria under the provincial governor Ventidius Cumanus. In AD 52, Claudius appointed him governor of Judea when Cumanus was deposed, an office usually reserved for the free men of the Roman equestrian order, which was obtained through the intrigue and support of the governor of Samaria, Quadratus. Fascinating. During his governorship, insurrections, here's, here's where we you know, get to what's relevant. We're talking about the character of the man. I, I, I'm not dismissing, by the way, uh, history and knowing it, but that's, that's not, that doesn't get me up in the morning as much. But let's, talk, let's look at the character here, okay? Let's look at the heart of this man. During his governorship, during his governorship, insurrections and anarchy increased throughout Palestine. Try as he would to put down the uprisings and regain control, his brutal methods only alienated the Jewish population more and led to further disturbances. Tacitus, a historian, described him as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. Despite his low birth, Felix had a succession of three wives, each in her own right a princess. The first was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra, making Felix the grandson-in-law of Antony. The third was Drusilla, the youngest daughter of Agrippa I, who was unhappy as the wife of Azizus, king of Amisa, and whom Felix desired because of her beauty, and who was persuaded through the intervention of a Cyprian magician named Atomus to leave her husband for him. Nero recalled Felix to Rome sometime during A.D. 59. Nothing is known about his subsequent fate. We learn a little bit about him, that what Tertullus said about him was just, again, it was kissing up. It was not true. There was not peace under, uh, under Felix in the, in the region of Judea. There was not peace. In fact, there was a lot of uh, uprising and strife. And his methods of brutal, you know, just kind of stamping it down, having them killed, uh, trying to threaten and intimidate, that didn't work. That only perpetuated the, the process of unrest and uprising. So he was not a good ruler. He was a violent ruler. And he was married three times. Okay? So he's on, on, on at least two fronts, we know that he was not a good guy. He was not a moral person. He was not a godly person. And we know he was also pagan. He was not a Christian or a Jew, but it does say, notice, that he was familiar with the way. He was familiar with the Christian message that had been spread at that time. So he had some familiarity, but he certainly was not a believer in Christ. But notice what Paul did here. It says, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul was preaching to him, was preaching the gospel to him, and it goes on, it says, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, right? You may leave, right? When I find it convenient, I will send for you. So you could see four things that Paul talked about, faith, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So when Paul gets an audience with this powerful man, not only is he powerful in a general political sense, he has some sway. Hey, maybe he can get you, maybe he can get Paul a new meeting place. Maybe he can build Paul his own building, right? And he could get the permits and all that stuff out of the way. He can favor Paul. He can, he can really help Paul's cause, right? Not only that, but Paul's on trial at the same time. I mean, he also kind of holds his life in his hands. And so what does Paul do when he has an audience with this ruler? Preaches to him about faith in Christ Jesus, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. You're talking to a man who, who brutally murders his, his political opponents 
and has married three women. He took Drusilla. What's interesting about her, she was the, she was the daughter of Agrippa, and she was a Jewess. She was a Jewish girl, and he takes her and basically defiles her. There's intermarriage, right? The Jews were not to marry pagans. So he takes her from her, her husband, takes her from another man. You see all kinds of mosaic laws being broken here, right? Taking her, remarriage, adultery, all that stuff. Plus, there's a magician involved. It just gets better and better. So you have a man who's, who's very immoral, and now he's being told about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Remember our friend John the Baptist? How did it go for him when he talked to Herod about, about his wife that he was unlawfully married to? How'd that end up going for him? He beheaded beheaded. It didn't go well for him. He's continuing in this tradition. When he gets the audience with those powerful people, when he's put on the hot seat, he doesn't back down. There's this saying that social justice warriors love. It's called speak the truth to power. They say that a lot. And, and in their mind, they're, they're talking about the man, right? The man, the, the Christian white man, the Ronald Reagan, the personification. Speak, you know, get in their face and rebuke them. They see themselves as prophets speaking their social justice message to, to the powerful people. You know what I'm saying? Well, take that for what it is. Speak the truth to power. Christians are the worst at that. The worst. You get Carl Lentz on Katie Couric asked a black and white question you know, what's your stance on homosexuals? You know his answer? We don't have a stance on, well, we don't have a stance on homosexuals, but we have a stance on love. And she just, what? What do you mean? Can you just tell me? Can you just be plain? Well, you see, I got to get to know your name first. And, and then he was on The View, kind of the same song and dance. He was, he was politicking, folks. He was politicking, right? And so he's put on, this, he's put on the hot seat. He does not talk about faith in Christ Jesus. He does not tell, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the person already that I was just talking, Katie Kirk doesn't tell Katie Kirk that she must repent, doesn't call the, the women of the view, as in the words of Amos the prophet, he called, who called the, the women of Jerusalem, he called them the cows of Bashan. He doesn't call them a bunch of cows and tell them that they, that they love the murder of children. He doesn't call them out on their wickedness and talk about selfish right. He politics because he wants their favor. This is the chance to win friends and influence people, folks. And by the way, in some Bible colleges, not SUM, praise God, but in some Bible colleges, church growth and cultural engagement are code words for win friends and influence people. Come on, somebody needs to tweet that. In some Bible colleges, and I'm, I'm going to say it real slow. I want you to get the words right. In some Bible colleges, cultural engagement and church growth are code words for how to win friends and influence people. And now it's his chance, right? Now it's his chance to make friends with Felix. But listen, we do it, we do it far more than that. Carl Lentz is an example, but listen... Take Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump's been married three times, if not more. And you have a lot of evangelicals that are around the man. I wonder. I, I don't know what happens in closed-door conversations. But I wonder, has anybody discoursed to him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? Has anybody shared with him about faith in Christ? Donald Trump's public statements concerning Christianity reflect he's not a Christian. He's, he's said in many ways things that outward, out, outwardly de, de deny the gospel, okay? And the way he's lived his life reflects he's not a Christian, right? But who's sharing about faith in Christ Jesus? Who's correcting him? Who's telling him that he can't save himself? Who's telling him that he's not a good enough person, right? Who's doing that? I don't know. I hope people are who have that audience, but you have not seen many things publicly, at least by the folks that are closest to him. But again, we can only hope. You guys know Ben Shapiro? Okay, Ben Shapiro, he's a nice Jewish boy. He's a, he's a journalist, speaker. He has the Daily Wire, this conservative news source. And, and a lot of Christians love to share his stuff because he agrees with us on so much worldview social issues, right? Like you'll share his video, it says, you know, Ben Shapiro destroys feminists. 
right? I was listening to a dialogue that he had with another guy, Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson, he's, another, he's not a Jew, but he has somewhat of a Judeo-Christian worldview. He's a, he's a professor up in Canada, and, and he's getting a lot of, a, a big following among conservatives because he dares to say stuff like, there's only two genders. You know what I'm saying? So he's getting a lot of trouble up there in Canada. And us conservatives, we love him for that. We love him for his boldness, right? And because we agree with him on so much. Anyway, you have a dialogue between Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro on religion. And Ben Shapiro, long story short, is giving the most ill-informed version of Christianity as he understands it. He's actually very sympathetic to Christians doesn't have any problem with them whatsoever. So it's not like when, like when some God-hater is giving their version of it. But it's still very misinformed, and it's way off. But he's saying stuff, it's like, but I haven't any, had any Christians tell me otherwise. I have not, he's, nobody's given him the straight story. Why? Because when they get around Ben Shapiro, they know, hey, this is my chance to win friends and influence people. We're, we're allies, you know? The, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Since he opposes feminism and abortion and all that stuff, he's just going to be my friend. You know, the gospel comes later. But first, and think about what we're doing here. Not only are we trying to suck up to the guy, we don't want to lose his favor, but we're placing, this cons- we're placing this social cause above the gospel. I hate abortion with a passion, and I'm glad he does. And I like, I like the stuff he says. Don't get me wrong, right? That, that's a hill to die on right? But I can't place that above the gospel. Oh boy, still going to hell if he's pro-life. If he's a pro-life Jew and he doesn't believe in the resurrection, as Paul says in this very chapter, why doesn't someone open his scriptures and show him, hey, the, sto- the story's not over, right? The curse is still in effect. The people of God are still in a spiritual exile. They're in a fallen state. Let me show you about the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who's done that? And according to him, nobody, none of the Christians he's been meeting, and I'm sure he's rubbed elbows with many, nobody's done it for him yet. And so what do we do? We can, we can do what I'm doing right now and just stand there and criticize them. Criticize the Christians who haven't said anything. But what about us? If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful with much. What about the people around you? What about friends and family members and coworkers? Will you... Share about faith in Christ Jesus. Will you discourse about righteousness, self-control, and judgment? Will you tell your friend, who's, who's your co-worker, who's sleeping with his girlfriend, listen, you guys are living in sin. Did you know that? Will we do those things? And listen, it, didn't go, it could have went a lot worse for Paul. I mean, he could have been handed over to the Jews and they could have had their way with him theoretically, right? We know God was in control. This was even prophesied. This was used by God to bring Paul into Rome. So it was all in God's hands. All I'm saying is, even though it could have went a lot worse, it didn't really, on on the surface, go great. He left him rotting in there for two years. And why? Because he wanted favor from the Jews. He's like, man, Paul ain't giving me no, Paul ain't telling me what I want to hear. He's not giving me a bribe. He's not telling me how good I am. He doesn't want to be my spiritual advisor. He just wants to rebuke me and tell me I'm going to hell, right? I forget this guy. I'm going to, the Jews, man, they're going to, I want to get their favor. I want to, I want to get in with them. I want to be on their good side. Paul ain't telling me what I want to hear. Come on. Well, we have a few minutes yet. And I just want to bring this to a close by just summarizing the three points. And if you're taking notes, I hope you are. There's three points that I wanted you to get from this, uh, from this message here, from, from Acts 24. The first is that the Old Testament or the Tanakh without the New Testament is a sad and incomplete story. That's the first thing, Right? The second thing is that Jesus brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so our great hope and the reason we live and the reason we serve and the reason we sacrifice, the reason we humble ourselves, and we could be doing anything out there. You young, all young men here, uh, where's Ashley? Well, Ashley's somewhere, young lady, gifted. The world is your oyster. Go out there, YOLO, live your life, make your money, have your fun, right? and yet you choose to humble yourself and serve Jesus, right? You have made choices. 
all of you have made choices, and all of you will continue to make choices that do not garner you worldly favor and prosperity. You are not taking the path of least resistance in life. You are taking the path of follow, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. And why do you do it? For merely human hopes, right? For merely human hope that Jesus will, well, eventually Jesus will give me worldly success. At least, you know, what if you die like Stephen? Cut down in your prime. Cut down even before you have a chance to begin, you know, in service to Christ. Did he do that for merely human hopes? No. He did that because his hope is that he will reign forever with Jesus. And everything he's doing in his life is preparation for that. Everything he's doing in this life is building up to that. And there are rewards. Listen, we need to not live for rewards that are here in this earth. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where the moth and rust decay, and the thief breaks in and steal, but lay up for yourselves, that's a basketball verse there, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that, that last forever, that are not subject to decay, right? Run it by the 50-year test, the stuff that you're after, will it matter in 50 years? Run it by the 100-year test, will it, will it matter in 100 years? You want to do stuff that will last forever. You're not living for the American dream, folks. The American dream is this, work hard for 50 years, okay, retire, go build sandcastles and play golf, and then die in a hospital bed, right? That's, that's the best anyone could hope for apart from Christ. And listen, apart from Christ, this is deep here, I was thinking about this, we were catching... Um, fish last week, carp, uh, Pastor Joe and I over by Algonquin, and they were spawning, and it was kind of gross because they were actually spewing their reproductive fluid, uh, it was gross, but you know, they're not the only, a lot of fish spawn, and, and I don't know if you knew this, but once fish spawn, they actually die, once they, once this, once they let their sperm and their eggs out, they, it's a slow dying process, and you'll actually see some, they're like swimming around, but they're like half decayed. Yeah. It's crazy, because they're just, they're in the process of dying, even as they flop around and swim and stuff, they're in the process of decaying. And that's, that's what some fish, dude, apart from Jesus, that's our life. You live, you live, you spawn, and you die with no purpose. And the generation after you live, spawn, and die. We have greater hopes than that. Not that we live, spawn, and die, and along the way we take some vacations. Right? But we live, we spawn. But we, don't, we never truly die. We go to sleep. Death to the Christian is like a light afternoon nap. Wake up in Jesus' presence. Wake up in the, in the, in the master suite. And then when he returns, whoop, get that new body, that Gucci suit. Trade in your busted old bugle boy jeans, right? That's our hope. That's the hope. That's what we're preaching. That's what we live for. And I, I just don't think that's being presented enough. It's always like you go to heaven when you die. That's, that's just far from it. We need a fuller presentation of the resurrection in the church, I believe. Paul says if the dead aren't raised, then our hope is futile then we are, uh, are to be pitied more than anybody, right? If there is no resurrection, if Christ is not raised. We talk about how Jesus died for our sins. We're good at talking about that, but are we good at proclaiming the resurrection and the meaning of it? I don't, I don't see it a lot, honestly. And it's, like, it's, it's, it's kind of like how the Old Testament is. You're telling half the story. Jesus loves you so much, he died for your sins. If you leave it there, he died for my sins, then what? He's is he still dead? Come on, is he still dead? He's not a broken man on a cross, right? He didn't stay in the grave, and he ain't staying in heaven forever. Last thing. Well, now I got on that tangent, so there's the first two things again. Number one, the Old Testament without the New Testament is a sad and incomplete story. Number two, our hope and the reason we serve and give our lives is for the, is for the resurrection, amen? Uh, and we need to not only understand that ourselves, but proclaim it. 
The third is that when we are given the opportunities to witness, let us not hold back. It's not about winning friends and influencing people, right? It's about winning souls for Christ, amen, and changing the world. Well, let's, uh, I guess that's our dismissal for, for today. Thank you guys for checking in with us online. Uh, let's just pray a quick word. Thank you, dear Lord, for your resurrected and glorified Son. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that your Spirit gives us boldness so that we can stand before anybody and tell them who you are and tell them that people must turn to you, Lord. Give us those opportunities in the days, weeks, months to come and throughout our lives. Give us those opportunities. Put us before the governors. Put us before the judges. Put us before the movers and shakers. Put us before the media, Lord, and let us be faithful to do what Paul did, to do what John the Baptist did, to do what all the prophets did, to do what Jesus did as he stood before Pontius Pilate, not begging for his life, but standing really over him because he understood who he was. He understood that he was on the side of eternity, not on the, he was on the right side of eternity and not the right side of history. We love you and bless you, God. Give us sufficient boldness and grace to proclaim you through all our days to all people. In Jesus' name.